0: This is second period class, day four of the 2019 Palm Springs Bible School. Our second period teacher is Brother John Popol. His general subject, The King Who Fell. Today's topic, Standing Guard in Vain. Brother John. Good morning once again. Good morning. I hope you're keeping up with your requisite four hours sleep a night, as I am, and you feel fresher than I do. But, where are we? We're we're looking at the song, of course, this week. And and the song is is a real mystery and it's been a mystery for a long time. And I'm I'm excited to suggest to you some ideas which I think help unlock that mystery. Uh, There's many mysteries in the scripture. Uh, I still find Revelation largely opaque. Um, Some mysteries, of course, we will never solve. Some things will just remain a mystery and will offer no solution (laughs) at any time. It doesn't really matter how many people work on the problem, Brother Randy, Brother Chris, Brother Jeff, I think I missed the next six, uh, fire service, ambulance, some things just never have a solution. But luckily, the song might and that's where we left off yesterday, isn't it? With a bit of a mystery. He is, uh, King Solomon has come to the palace of his beloved and he's beating on the door to come in and and she's finally got up and, and opened the door, and he's not there. And we're wondering, well, where did he go, and, and why did he leave at all? Uh, now, of course, <laughs> if you're expecting me to supply the answer, of course I don't have any access to any information that you don't already have. Uh, and the, the real trick to the, to the question is, guess what it says so in the text? If you actually look at the text, she opens the door, he's not there, but someone else is. Who's there? The watchman. The watchmen are there. Now, how does that answer the question? It doesn't fully answer the question yet, and and before we fully answer the question, let's just back up a step and consider the watchman as as a general concept of Scripture. The chapter about which we'll learn most uh, in the watchman is going to be Ezekiel 33, I think you probably already know that, and explains the duties of the watchman, it's to protect the city of course, And, and the duties are sufficiently important, that sort of federal position is so important that their lives are on the line. If they fail to sound a warning when they should, and someone dies as a consequence of an attack that was not reported, then the watchman is deserving to die. They are the protectors of a city. They are obligated to defend. Anyone who dies as a consequence of their negligence, their life is forfeit. It's a big deal. Now, Ezekiel 33 is the the most uh, comprehensive description of the watchman's task. It's pretty much what I just said. But it's not the first mention of watchman in the Scripture. The first mention of watchman in the Scripture was written, who do you think wrote it? Maximum irony in the answer. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. Jeff knows how this works. Exactly, and it is. It's actually Psalm 127, which is a a song of a sense written by Solomon, and he says this, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. They're wasting their time unless the city is worshipping God. But who's going to determine whether or not the capital city worships God? it's going to be down to the king and the precedent that he sets. So, if the king has turned away from God and is chasing hedonism or fleshly delights or whatsoever, then all the watchmen are standing guard in vain. Solomon himself has once said so and those words are about to come back to bite him because that's exactly what we're going to see happen. The watchmen have no power if the king is ungodly and leads worship astray from worshipping the Lord. Now, the watchman and the bride already have some history, they've met once already, they meet twice in the song, they've met once already in chapter 3, let's just refresh our memories uh, as to how that goes. All night long, says the bride, on my bed, I look for the one my heart loves, I couldn't find him, I will get up now and go about the city, through its streets and squares." The watchman found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him, okay? So, the watchmen don't have a chance to do or say anything because as she meets them, also the king is there to meet her uh, for one of their nightly rendezvous. But the watchmen are going to learn certain things from this encounter. First of all, they'll learn that the bride and the king rendezvous at night, right? Because that's what they've just witnessed they will learn that this Lebanese bride, this foreigner, who is of the goddess Ashtoreth, uh, is intent on union with the king and that the king also is willing, that he's, he's absolutely infatuated with her and therefore, spiritually speaking, he's vulnerable and worship in the city is about to turn away from God. So, it makes sense that the watchmen are on alert, their lives are on the line. If they don't report or act... On a matter which could destroy the city, then their own lives would be forfeit. So, realize all this has come into their mind on this first meeting in chapter 3 and they meet again right here in chapter 5. I opened for my lover, she said, but my lover had left. I looked for him but did not find him. I called him. He didn't answer. The watchman found me as as they made their rounds in the city. So, where has he gone? Or what's happened? Why isn't he there? Yeah, the police, the watchmen are, are trying to defend the city, absolutely right, Tony, and, and they've, they've basically whisked him away. No, no, sir, sire, come, come, come with us, come with us. On, on some pretense or on some pretext or whatever, they have taken him away because they realise this union is disastrous for Jerusalem. She opens the door, the king is not there but the watchmen are the watchmen have entreated or whisked Solomon away, I believe they are trying to save the city and trying to save Solomon himself, therefore, from this relationship that will otherwise destroy him and that now makes sense. Then we, the, the next verses which make no sense at all in any form of love song is, of course, then physical violence. Now, whether this is physically true or whether this is a metaphor or a poem of what happened, I don't know, it doesn't matter, but the watchmen beat the bride, they beat me, she said, they bruised me. They took away my cloak, very interesting word that, the redid, those watchmen of the walls. Now, in our culture, in fact, probably in any culture, the idea that you're going to sympathize with a group of men beating up a woman in the streets is a pretty hard step to take. And culturally, for me, that's extremely difficult. But looking at this, we have to say, it is the woman who, though innocent, is the risk of death for the city, and the watchmen are executing their duties to do the right thing to eliminate that risk. That's a kind of a hard sell. And, it, and if you're looking skeptical, I don't blame you, but I, that's what I've had to try and entreat uh, myself. And there's some encouragement here from the scriptures that we'd be going the right way. Let me show you. In that day, the Lord will snatch away Judah's finery because Judah had become, uh, uh, was prostituting herself with other uh, religions. The linen garments, the tiaras, and the shawls. This is the only other use of this word in the whole Bible. It only occurs twice, once there in the Song of Songs and once here where it is actually the shawl of the prostitute. Judah is actually behaving like a prostitute and God describes her as a prostitute and says, well, I'm going to beat you and I'm going to strip away your prostitute shawl, which is the same shawl that the woman is seen to wear. Okay. So the watchmen actually do what God does. And and once you see that from Isaiah, it becomes a lot easier to say, okay, well then I guess they're doing the right thing. And this may not be a physical reality, this may just be a a, a kind of a poetic rendition of what's going on. So the watchmen are attempting to save the city, they forfeit their lives otherwise, from Ezekiel 33, but they're powerless, because the king will obviously overrule them and say, well, yeah, but I'm going back to the girl. And so they're standing guard in vain. They're powerless, to um, actually save the city, because the king can overrule them. But do you notice something? There's no punishment, is there, from the king? I mean, if if they've actually beaten up his beloved, let's say, let's anoint uh, King Shane here um, and make him all-powerful, okay? And as an Australian, he probably thinks that anyway, but it will make him an all-powerful ruler in the land. Now, if I'm the chief of police and I've let got my band of merry men, and we've physically beaten his beloved, what happens to me, Shane? It's it's more than just cricket balls, right? It's more than just fast cricket balls, yeah. Bad news, I die. So, why didn't the watchman get punished? It doesn't say, so we have to speculate, sorry. Yeah, I believe that's true. It's only a speculation, but I agree with you. At the end of the day, Solomon deep down knows, I shouldn't be doing this, And so you've just got this kind of awkward silence. The chief of police has just been beating the bride, um, but he's not going to get punished. The watchmen are not punished by Solomon. He can't actually justify the union. He knows the watchmen were doing the right thing and that he's not. So you just have this awkward, no consequence relationship uh, after this incident takes place. Remember, of course, there were 60 warriors, 60 watchmen, if you like, and there were 60 queens, 60 brides. She wasn't the only one, but the song is trying to show us this was the terrors of the night, the girls by whom he was infatuated and spiritually who would cause his downfall and his disaster. We've seen that slide before. Let's also move on and introduce ourselves to the daughters of Jerusalem who are the citizens of Jerusalem, the city, and, and we've said before, they are described with male grammar, because it's, it's doubtless supposed to be the, both the men and the women of the city, but they're also given the label daughters, because, necessarily feminine, because that's whom the king should have wedded. Literally, he should have taken a bride that was of the same religion, or, or converted someone else, that's equally good, um, and, and he should have been, as king, married to the needs of the city. That the people that he served. That's what a godly king would do, that's what his father had done, but he hadn't. They're represented as daughters, as I just said, to emphasise them as the correct bride for the king. So we can anticipate, therefore, that there will be a hostile relationship, uh, not a friendly relationship, between the daughters of Jerusalem, who, who, who should have been the bride of the king, or the brides of the king, and the brides, particularly this bride, that he has chosen instead. Do we see that? You can have chapter 5 and and whatnot open in front of you if you want, but I'll put the the verses up here on the the screen. Now, this is the bride speaking. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved as to what you'll tell him, for I am lovesick. Now, you notice that verb, and, and all of the modern versions kind of cop out by having some sort of more diluted form. That's an adjure, an adjuration. Where have we met that before? With, with Christ. With Christ. In, in what context, Marco? You right? You're quite right. That's right. And he was being silent, so it was actually illegal for them to do this, but they adjured him, which meant that he had to answer by oath. It is when you compel someone to give an oath, which was uh, available in the Jewish system. So here's my point. You don't adjure your friends, right? It's a hostile relationship, automatic automatically if you're saying, I compel you to tell an oath. And clearly, she wants to control the conversation. Like, what are you saying about me to the king? I'm in love with him. Don't tell him anything else. I am in love with him. And a jaw is to compel an oath when not freely given. This dynamic is hostile. And then, uh, in response, do you notice what the daughters say in chapter, the very next verse? What kind of of beloved is your beloved? that you thus adjure us. In other words, how would we translate that into modern speech? You don't have the right, or I'd put it this way, who do you think you are, right? Who do you think you are that you can compel us to give an oath as to what we're going to say to the King, our King, thank you very much, we're the citizens of Jerusalem. Who do you think you are? And so she replies in a way kind of innocently and she replies with this big long description of how beautiful she finds him and then at the very end, the verse says, she caps it off by saying, this is my lover, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So how do you translate that into modern language? (laughs) I like it, yeah, that's what I saw, back off, he's beautiful and he's mine back off, right? And that doesn't make any sense in, in a love song, but in the, in the interpretation that we've taken here, it makes perfect sense why the dynamic would be that way. She's compelling them not to wreck the relationship. They're, not, they're completely unhappy that she, she's asserting this authority that they don't think she should have, and she says, well, yeah, well, either way, at the end of the day, he's mine, get lost, okay? So it's, it is the hostile relationship we would have anticipated. In fact, here's a a verse that must be important because it shows up three times in chapters 2, 3 and 8, daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you by the gazelles and the does of the field, we looked at that before, swearing an oath by the gazelles because there's no recognition of God, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So what does that actually mean? The traditional reading of that, says, don't start love before it is ready and that's good advice in any event. But I don't think that's what, that's what the verse is actually saying. I think this arouse or awaken, awaken, particularly the Hebraists tell us, is to do with interrupting, right? Don't interrupt, awaken something, don't interrupt something that's going on. Do not disturb our love, or do not disturb, do not awaken us from uh, our activities. That's what she's actually telling, repeatedly telling the daughters of Jerusalem. Do not break up. Our relationship, do not break up our relationship or even literally more physically, do not disturb our lovemaking. The bride is aware that the King of Jerusalem is mesmerized by her and she's adjuring the citizens of Jerusalem not to disrupt them, not to split them up. That's what this uh, will actually come out to mean. There's some evidence for this because it occurs in 2, 7, 3, 5 and 8, 4 and the evidence supporting that is to look at the verse before. And in each case, in two, six, three, four, eight, three, you'll see um, the beginnings of the description of uh, a sexual scene. For each oath, the verse before speaks of the onset of an intimate encounter. Two of them are identical. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm is coming round to embrace me, uh, and the middle one is different, but it's still when I found him whom my soul loves, I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. Which sounds like he's going home for tea and biscuits and cucumber sandwiches with, with the family, but it actually has a very different rendition in Hebrew, which I'll happily explain to you privately if you ask me. Uh, it's pretty R-rated, but uh, uh, I'll just leave that one there. So, see, uh, even I have boundaries. astonishing, isn't it? Daughters of Jerusalem, then, in summary, what do we find? the bride adjures the daughters to disclose comments to Solomon that she, she loves him. In other words, she's trying to control the conversation. There's a hostile relationship between the bride and the daughters. It's competitive over wanting the attentions of the king, the daughters of Jerusalem for the godly reasons that they're supposed to be led by him to God uh, and of course he's pursuing her instead, meaning the watchmen are, uh, are just don't have any power to do anything useful and the bride adjures the daughters three times not to disrupt the relationship, whether in terms of their physical activity or in terms of actually destroying the relationship per se. So that's all uh, we have learned. It's all fitting in with the, with the interpretation that we have. We looked at the major symbols, you remember that yesterday? We saw beauty, we saw that the song is constructed with lilies, myrrh, doves, and gardens and vineyards, and we saw that that meant the, the symbols translated by the Bible itself were beauty, death, a new path, and a fertile woman which fit very well as an independent proof with our assertion that this, uh, this book is describing Solomon's deadly new path, chasing beautiful women. That's the major symbols that show up may, many times. We looked at those. But even in the minor symbols, in the, in the little symbols that just show up once, or, or maybe twice, we can see uh, the same dynamic. Let's have a look at them. For example, a mare among stallions. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. We've looked at that verse before. Uh, and we've seen that that's helpful. It it helps us identify the male character of Solomon because he's the one who knew about Egyptian horses. But actually now look at what the verse says. If you've got Pharaoh's chariot horses, which are stallions, and you stick a mare in the middle, what do you think happens? Yeah, it's it's chaos, right? It actually would be a good military tactic. Does anyone think to do that? Yes, they did. In the Battle of Kadesh, when the Hittites... uh, Fought, um, fought the Egyptians. Uh, that's precisely what they did, 1274 BC. They sent a whole bunch of mares in heat out onto the battlefield. And pharaoh's cavalry was just, a, <laughs> obviously, was, uh, was otherwise engaged and was disrupted. <laughs> I'll leave that there. Again, I don't have, I didn't put a photograph up for that one. I thought we'd just have a nice old drawing. Um, Now, Ramesses II, who was at that battle, still won the battle, as it turned out, but his cavalry was utterly neutralised by the presence of the the mayors. So, what what does this really say? It says, he's trying to say she's beautiful, but maybe he doesn't realise what he's saying is, you will disrupt a king's campaign, which of course is exactly what she did. So, you know, the lesson was there right in his own words as to what she was going to do for him she was going to absolutely derail him. She's enticing, but she will derail a king's campaign as he himself has spoken. If only he could hear his own words, he's in such a flush of lust and excitement that he's not even listening to the words coming out of his own mouth in his own song. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of en Now, en is a very beautiful place, I've never been there. Has anyone been to en can you testify it's a beautiful place? Does that seem reasonable? I know the, i oh, sorry, little pockets are. I know the Israeli tourist board, I've seen the website advertises it and puts up lots of pictures of it saying it's gorgeous, you've got to go there. Um, but when we look at it both physically and when we look at it in scripture, we see something really rather, rather interesting. There's a river there, uh, it's got two names and I forget what it is. And so the river water goes straight into the Dead Sea over the cliff. So, living water goes splot into, literally, water so salty, it is called the Dead Sea, right there at En Gedi, which is interesting. And what's more interesting, because that's just physical, is scriptural. En Gedi shows up twice in the Bible. What's happening? David is running for his life, where the man of God was in mortal peril on both occasions. 1 Samuel 24, David is fleeing Saul, he's hiding out in En Gedi, and 2 Chronicles 20, which is uh, straining my memory, ah, it's actually Jehoshaphat, I think, not Duncan Jehoshaphat Kenzie, but the other Jehoshaphat, and he is exp- expresses himself in great fear and distress because there's the sound of a huge army coming towards him from which God will end up delivering him. However, Engedi is not a happy place for the man of God on either of the occasions that it's used. The Song of Songs vineyards are beautiful, therefore, it's beautiful, uh, but they are perilous. By scriptural precedent, they are perilous to the man of God. So, you know, that's interesting that S- Solomon would choose En Gedi of all places where his father nearly died uh, to, to say this is, the, this is the, the way that he sees the uh, location of his bride. Beautiful, but deadly. We've seen that a lot, haven't we? Get a bit more. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy. Mandrakes. Goodness me, it, it's strange, isn't it? Where's the only mention of mandrakes in the whole Bible other than here? Yeah, and what's going on? It's, it's kind of a bit of a tawdry scene, isn't it? Yeah, she, she, she yeah purchasing sex for a night. It's, uh, uh, the Hebrew word is actually um, uh, almost exactly the same word as dodim, the word for lovemaking, dudaim. Uh, so um, it, I don't know whether the idea that mandrakes are an aphrodisiac comes because of that name, or the name comes because of that belief. I'm not sure which is the chicken and which is the egg. Either way, it's, it's, it's clearly something that's believed to be related to sexual activity. The sole biblical appearance is that Leah buys a night with Jacob with her mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said, because I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. Do you see what he says? Yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> Silence. Nothing. The man has no power at all in this interaction. He wanders in from the field, that bed tonight, uh (laughs) Right? And and that's that's the fragrance that we have associated with the story of mandrakes. And Solomon says, yeah, that's what's going on here. Like, really, are you hearing yourself? You're absolutely right, Solomon. That's exactly what's going on. She is leading you by the nose. And, And you're not having a say in anything at all. You're just being obediently led around. Again, if Solomon could hear his own words, uh, he'd know that. The mandrake precedent, the female controls the sexual encounter, and that's what, uh, this is the fragrance that's come back in the song. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. Difficult zoological question for you. What do you find in a lion's den? A lion. A <laughs> lion the occasional misplaced prophet, okay, but generally, <laughs> it's lions. What do you find in a haunt of leopards? It's not difficult, is it? And, and, and how strange that he's saying, this is he saying, this is your home, this is where you come from. Make haste, my beloved, she says, this is the closing verse, uh, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag. Okay, great, he's a gazelle or a young stag, she's a lion or a leopard. Can you, can you think of a picture that has those two together? Well, that's the, that's the picture before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's the earlier just about PG picture beforehand, okay? She's the leopard, he's the gazelle or the young stag. And he's saying this and she's saying this. They just listen to themselves. She's the predator, not intentionally. She loves him. But this relationship is ultimately predatory and he's the prey. Repeated emphasis from Engetty, from the mandrakes, from the leopards and the lions and the gazelles and the stags, repeated emphasis that she's deadly. I belong to my lover, his desire is for me. You might say, oh come on, don't, don't, don't try and turn that one sour. That, that's, that's as innocent as to belong in a hallmark greeting card, isn't it? You've probably seen that, it probably, it probably is used, I haven't seen it myself, but it probably is. But this, it's not the right word. There's a word, there's a Hebrew word for desire which is used a couple of hundred times. I am supposed to tell you what it is but I forgot, never mind, you can look it up. But this one is a very special word, only occurs three times in the whole Bible, this is the third time. The first two are extremely instructive, they're right at the beginning of the Bible. By chapter 4 of Genesis, the second time has been used. And it's an interesting desire because it's the desire, it can be the desire of a man for a woman or of a beast, to devour its prey. Let me show you the uses. God is speaking. If you do what is right, Cain, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. This is the desire that sin has for Cain. What is the relationship that sin wants with Cain? It's not dinner and a movie, okay? Sin is not going to romance Cain, sin is desiring to consume and kill Cain. So, whichever way it's pointing, she's still saying, this is the desire that we have in our relationship. The other one is even earlier, God is uh, talking to Eve, cursing Eve, notice, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing and your desire will be for your husband, that sounds like a fun relationship, doesn't it? And he will rule over you. In other words, because of your desire, your husband will have power over you, okay? So, what's she saying? She's saying, aha, Genesis 3, I've turned it around. I don't think she knows enough of the Bible to say that, but that's essentially what the song is saying. You think he's going to rule over me because of my female tashukah desire? I know, it's the other way around now. Oops she says, I've reversed this. He has the desire in such a way that now I will rule over him. And it's all there in the song. It's right in front of our eyes. I'm not, I'm not, this isn't something I've said, this is something right out of the verse. It's absolutely beautiful, uh, deadly beautiful, it's a deadly beauty but it's still beautiful to see that this contract that God has constructed between man and woman and she, the bride, has says, yeah, And I've turned it right around. (laughs) You know, not much to interpret here. Our love is as strong as death; its jealousy unyielding as the grave. Do you write that to your beloved? (laughs) That one probably doesn't appear in a Hallmark greeting card anywhere, does it? You know, it's not in a Valentine's Day card. It's, I mean, I, I get it's the strength of death which is which is being spoken of. But the point is, why would you pick such an analogy? our love is as strong as the grave, my dear. Oh, great, yeah, thanks, thanks for that. But that's what it says, and it's pretty simple. Repeated emphasis, this love will be deadly. So whether it's the mares in Egypt or the language we've seen used her walking the streets, the leopard, the gazelles, the prostitute shawl, the, the predatory desire, 60 warriors for 60 queens, all around us, we're actually being bombarded, if we just pay attention to the text, we're actually being bombarded with exactly the same theme every time. There are subtle infusions of deadly concepts throughout this song. Once you realise, once you see one, you see ten. You see them all and it's it's beautiful to see the song just coming out of the text uh, in its own terms and seeing it as such. So I'm very excited about uh, things like this. There's only one more uh, set of characters in the song and that's the witnesses. They don't say a lot but they're commenting here. Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. And this is speaking of the bride. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? I remember when I first read that and I was trying to interpret the song and I, I literally laughed out loud. I said, ha, I'll never understand that. Never mind, you know, because you don't have to interpret every single verse, I can't. But astonishingly, I now find myself in a situation where I believe, I could well be deluded, but I believe that I understand what this is, what this comment means. Uh, Now, because the normal rules of exposition don't apply, because you say, Shulamite, great, I'll look it up, where else is it in the Bible? Oh, it's one other place, great, oh, it's the same verse, oops, and that's it, and that's all you've got. Dance of Mahanaim, no chance, that's it. Mahanaim, yes, you've got that in various places and we'll use that, but we don't have a dance of Mahanaim anywhere, I don't really know what that is, but we'll see, we'll see what we can do. Let's take the first couplet, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. What does that mean? I think on the surface, it means what it says. Pretty girl's walking down, she's going down to the nut garden, it says. She's walking down, it's like, oh, come back, let's look at you some more, you're so beautiful. That's the surface reading, but there's always a, a, a deeper sense. First of all, the Hebraists tell us, this word really means, it's a reprise, it's something we've seen before. We would use the term in French, or in English, we would use the French term, déjà vu. This is Déjà vu, déjà vu. Déjà vu. Shulamite. We've seen this before. Deja vu, deja vu, vision. It's just one word, really. Uh, again, the economy of Hebrew, it's subi, subi, Shulamite, subi, subi, Hazar, and that's it. Okay? What's this, the, this vision that they see? This word is not the usual word for gaze. It's a rare one. Again, Isaiah 21 will show you. A dire vision is shown to me. That's the vision they see in seeing this Shulamite again we've seen this before, this is deja vu, we've seen this Shulamite somewhere before and it's a dire vision. That's what the witnesses are saying. What do they mean? Where have they seen it before? And it's uh, somewhat hard to uh, translate. What does Shulamite mean, given we've got no clues? It's not the feminine of Solomon, which would be Shalemit. Um, Interestingly, in the Septuagint, they actually have Salome. Now, who's Salome? And and Josephus will tell us, even though she's not named in the Scripture, that's Herodias' daughter. What did Herodias' daughter do? Dance. You've got something to do, it was some sort of erotic dance that led a king's destruction, ultimately got John the Baptist killed. So, that that again is the spirit of of the song and and some suggest that since the the letters L and uh, N are often exchanged in Hebrew, which I, I did find a reference for, that it's a reference to Abishag the Shunammite, Shulamite, the beloved, it's either a variant of Shunamite, possibly, in ancient Semitic languages the letters L and N were sometimes interchanged, now that's just out of a study Bible so that doesn't mean you should trust it, but there is actually a proper proper academic reference to suggest that that is indeed the case. Okay, fine, why would we we be concerned with Abishag the Shunamite? There's a Hebrew culture of wordplay, you know about this, Uh, They don't use puns in Hebrew. Pun is where you have one word with two different meanings, and you use it in one sense and allude to the other. Um, But Hebrew employs irony through similar-sounding words. Remember this picture from the picture Bible? This is uh, Jeremiah chapter 1. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of the almond tree. You've seen correctly, for I am watching, says God, to see that my word is fulfilled. Nonsense in English. But when you realize almond is shaked, and watching is shakad, you can see the game that's being played. God shows Jeremiah shakad, says, what do you see? I see shakad. He's like, yes, because I am shakad. And that's how the Hebrew works. It doesn't make any sense at all in English, of course. There's several others, and again, you won't see them in the Bible unless you know the Hebrew. Micah is cursing a bunch of people. And he says, tell it not in Gath. In Beth-Ophrah, roll in the dust. Those who live in Sanan will not come out. Okay, but tell is gad, and dust is afer, and come out is tsar. So, what he's saying is gad it not in gath. In beth roll in the afer, and those who live in Sanan will not tsar. And it goes on and on, and it's just, you know, it's a Hebrew game throughout. In English, again, it's pretty meaningless. And so, I think that helps us see what, what's going on. This is Solomon's Shunammite. The conflation of Shalamit, Shunamite will give us that Hebrew word game Shulamite, i.e. this is Solomon's Abishag. They've seen Abishag and this one's Solomon's Abishag. We've seen this before. This didn't end well. What are they referring to? In Solomon's early reign, he was righteous. He was just. He did the right things, briefly. And one thing he did do was he executed his half-brother Adonijah, why did Adonijah get executed? He was trying to usurp the throne. He tried it once by actually declaring himself king and then then David overturned that while David was still alive, just before David died And, and Adonijah begged for forgiveness from Solomon and Solomon forgave him very graciously and said, okay, you may live but then Adonijah just couldn't let it go. Please ask King Solomon, he says to Solomon's mother Bathsheba, he won't refuse you, you're his mom. To give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Now, not only was that his father's former wife, which makes it wrong for for that reason alone, but really, he's after the throne. She was a queen, she was the last queen and he's trying to usurp the throne and and Solomon knows it. King Solomon swore by the Lord, may God deal with, (coughs) with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. So, King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and he struck down Adonijah and he died, okay? So, Adonijah was killed because he'd chosen an inappropriate bride. You see that? The precedent, a royal prince is executed for choosing a forbidden bride. Do you see now why the witnesses in the song are saying, deja vu, deja vu, Shulamite, deja vu, deja vu, dire vision. You see what they're saying? Déjà vu, déjà vu, Shulamite. Déjà vu, déjà vu, a dire vision. It's an indictment of hypocrisy against Solomon. It's like, you killed your half-brother for doing this. You executed him. He wasn't just killed, he was like legally pronounced worthy of death and killed. Solomon executes Adonijah for attempting to marry Abishag the Shunammite and then Solomon marries his own Shunammite, the the Shulamite, i.e. a a bride that should have been forbidden to him someone he should never have touched. Come back, come back, Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. Why would we gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? Why would we see the same thing we've just seen in the Shulamite also in the dance of Mahanaim? What on earth that is. Let's have a look. How is the dire vision of the Shulamite the same view or the same vision as the dance of Mahanaim? What do we know about Mahanaim? The legacy of Mahanaim, it means two armies or a, divi- a divided company, is a house divided. When Jacob first was there, he, he felt that he'd been in the presence of God and there was a company of God and a company of men, so he called it two camps, Mahanaim, which had a very positive outlook, but right away, it turned negative and stayed that way, because then he heard Esau was coming and he was very, very fearful, so in great, in great fear and distress, Israel divided the people who were with him into two groups. If Esau attacks one, at least half my family will survive, okay? So, it's about dividing the people. After Saul dies, Abner divides the kingdom of Israel by anointing Saul's son, Ishbosheth. okay? Where did he choose to do it? At the place called House Divided and he divided the house of company of Israel and when Absalom rebelled, revolts and divided Israel's kingdom into those who followed David and those who followed Absalom, once again David flees first and the first place he goes is the place called House Divided, Mahanaim. House Divided, House Divided, House Divided. That's the legacy of Mahanaim. And this is the reason that Shimei was executed. David says to Solomon, these are his last words, and remember, you have with you Shimei who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim, you will know what to do to him, bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. So, Shimei was executed because of what happened at Mahanaim and that's what Solomon says to him, you know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father David, then the king gave the order to Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and he went out and struck Shimei down and killed him. So, another execution. For the bloodier scenes we use Lego, it's a little little bit more palatable. What happened? Shimei's death sentence came at Mahanaim. This is Mahanaim, the road to Mahanaim. Shimei pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. So much so that the warriors with David were much incensed. Do you remember Abishai, his best quote in the whole Bible, in my opinion. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. And uh, David let Shimei live for, his whole, for the whole rest of his life. But I think he felt that Solomon wasn't going to be wise enough, wasn't going to be shrewd enough to be able to control people like Joab, to control people like Shimei, and said, okay, time no longer. You haven't repented. You need to be executed. I wonder whether Mahanaim, Israel's house divided, it was all about dividing the house of Israel and that's what Solomon has done because now he's gone off and married the woman who belongs to Ashtoreth, goddess of the Lebanese and it's divided from Yahweh, okay? I wonder, David's fleeing retinue, dodging the rocks that are constantly being pelted, I wonder if that's what they refer to ironically as the dance of Mahanaim. I don't know, I don't have anything else. It's interesting to think about. They didn't, certainly didn't stand still or walk in a straight line They'd have been tagged, worse than the, uh, worse than the English batsmen. You'll see, them, you'll see them dance around. They, they often, that's what, what, do they, what do they call it? Chin music, that's it. When you bounce the ball so hard it comes zooming up at the batsman's head. A little bit of chin music for you to dance to, is what they say. And, and that's what's going on here, and worse. Rocks hurled at them, so they would have been dancing around. It's an indictment of hypocrisy, Solomon has denigrated David's throne and divided Israel, Mahanaim, by marrying the Shulamite beauty. He's done what Shimei did. And so what we're seeing is that this is a double indictment of hypocrisy. Shulamite was the forbidden bride which Prince Adonijah improperly tried to marry. Solomon executed Adonijah for his crime. Mahanaim was where the kingdom was divided by Absalom, by Absalom's rebellion. And the throne was abused by Shimei's attack and pelting with rocks. Solomon executed Shimei for his crime and then Solomon did both of them. Solomon duplicates the crimes of Adonijah and of Shimei and I think that's what the witnesses are saying. Deja vu, deja vu, this is the Shunammite again and he's Solomon's Shunammite, the Shalemit Shunammite. Deja vu, deja vu, dire vision, And why would we see the same dire vision in the Shulamite, as we see in the Dance of Mahanaim? How can you righteously execute men for committing the crimes that you then go on to commit? Adonijah tried to marry how many improper brides? One. How many improper brides did Solomon have? He committed the sin of Adonijah 1,000 times and yet he's not going to execute himself. That's why the witnesses speak. And that brings us, I'm on time. (laughs) Like, exactly, 12 noon. And uh, we've actually pretty much finished the Song of Solomon, but the the last class, I think, is certainly my favourite, because we're going to start seeing the song as it belongs in the broader pattern of Scripture, and there are much bigger patterns to appreciate. So I sincerely hope you can be here tomorrow when we look at the last stage called, Here There Be Giants. Thank you.